Oh, man. All right. So you fell down an elevator shaft in Turkey in yeah. the middle of the night. Man. All right. That's a good one. That is a mishap. That is a mishap. But I have a better one. Go. All right. All right. Give it to us. This is the Final Call Morning. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 434. At 120 degrees Fahrenheit, or 48.9 degrees Celsius, Argentina has the hottest recorded temperature ever in South America. And at negative 32.8 degrees Fahrenheit, that's negative 27 degrees Celsius, it also has the coldest recorded temperature in South America history. I guess that's what happens when your country is 2,175 miles long. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who, since 2005, has hitchhiked across 95 countries, including Afghanistan and Iraq, to document hospitality and fight stereotypes, and who has written a book about it called Hitchhiking in the Axis of Evil, Juan Vicherino from JuanVicherino.com. Juan, thanks for joining me. A big welcome. Hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot. I'm glad to be speaking about traveling in this, your podcast. I'm honored. So, yeah, let's go for it. Did I did I nail the Argentinian pronunciation of your name? Was that okay? Oh, yeah, you got it perfect, man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I made sure to ask you beforehand if you guys are listening because I, I knew that it would be different Argentinian Spanish from Spanish, Spanish, you know, Spain, Spanish. So um, glad I could nail that right off the bat. And, you know, you have a fascinating story. We're going to dive into a lot of the, the stuff that you're doing right now. I wanted to start, though, by asking about hitchhiking itself and how you got started using that as a way to travel around. Because a lot of people probably hear hitchhiking and they think, oh, no, that's something that could have happened in like, you know, 60s, 70s. It was fine then. But now, oh, no way. Way too dangerous a world. And you're sitting there saying, I'm going to use it as a way to showcase that the the other side, like the exact opposite of what people might think. Sure. It's like people have this idea of like, you know, like a stereotype of like uh, hitchhiking was coming in the 60s, but now, nowadays uh, you don't see it anymore. And I can't understand why, because I, I've been in the States and you don't see too many hitchhikers around. But it's pretty common in many other areas of the world. And I think I bumped into it by chance, like when I was in university, just like looking, you know, when you were doing, I was doing these short trips around my country or region, just like for the sake of uh, achieving like a taste of freedom, you know. Uh, I was uh, still at university. I was in the third year of psychology. Uh, but eventually, you know, gradually I started like to travel more and more around the country. And then I did like a three months trip to Europe by hitchhiking in year 2001. That was a bit of a mess because, like, you know, Europe a year before to the euro, you had to change money into like 16 different currencies and pesetas and francs and deutschmarks. That was so funny. And with, with travel check, traveler checks and stuff like that. Uh, and there was no 
too many online resources to get information about. So I was basically jumping into the, the, in the void, you know, and arrived to Madrid and then started to hitchhike around. And I was surprised, like, whoa, hitchhiking works here. It's not something we have in Argentina as well, <laughs> only. <laughs> so I thought it was like something regional uh, prior to that. So, uh, so I, I was like three months hitchhiking around successfully in Western Europe plus Czech Republic probably and Slovenia. And after that, I, I think that was like the turning point. After that trip, I realized that I wanted to, you know, to travel as a lifestyle and not just like go backpacking for three months. But I had this big dilemma if I, whether I should, you know, uh, stop my studies or make like a standby and give like nomadism a chance. Uh, and then two things happened after that trip. And I think was like one of the things was like a big crisis here in Argentina, like an economic crisis. Like we have like three presidents in two days. And uh, one of them fleeing the, the government house in an helicopter and the currency, you know, exchange rate changing like crazy. Um, and basically, and most importantly, people were losing their savings overnight because some of the banks were fleeing the country. So that actually somehow it became a positive thing for me personally, because like, it showed me like the relativity of all this idea of stability, all this promised land of, you know, you have to worry your ass off for 25 years and you will have economic stability. And I could see that just it wasn't like a, a, a warranty enough. And, and then the other thing was September 11, of course, because uh, so I, I was like studying like psychology and anthropology uh, and the way that stereotypes about like the Muslim world started to consolidate after September 11, that gave me like a reason to go hitchhiking to these places. And I could like question my role as a student, like what I'm doing here, if like history is like unfolding in front of my nose, you know? Uh, so I think that gave me, like the crisis gave me the motive, let's say like the, 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 the state of mind to be able to, to leave everything here. But then all these things that geopolitics and things that were going on in that area gave me like, okay, like there is a sense of opportunity and there's a reason for me to go there. Uh, rather than memorizing theories at university. So I think that was like the main scenario on how it became, you know, serious or hitchhiking. Yeah, you said there's history unfolding under my nose. I love that, you know, instead of saying, let me just sit here and study it or teach it or, you know, go into a field about it, let me go experience it because this is a world event that happened that obviously people will talk about, you know, for years and years and years and years, right? It changed it really did change the scope of the world. Um, and so you said, well, what is behind this? Let, let me go figure that out. What was the feeling from friends, family members, people closest to you when you said, hey, I'm not only going to go off and travel, but I'm also going to go and go to some of these areas and I'm all, and I'm going to be hitchhiking, right? So it's like, a, it's like three whammies in a row. I, I'm not going to maybe go get a regular job. I'm going to go travel to, to areas that some people are saying, like, no way, don't go here. And third, I'm going to do it through hitchhiking. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, as you can imagine, like, people uh, around me were a bit <laughs> crazy about it. Like, I mean, it's, I think it's every time someone, I mean, there's like a pattern, like when people decide to quit everything and go traveling, you have this resistance of your uh, group of people around because, Somehow, also, your decision works as a subtle criticism to their lifestyle, you know? So, some, it's like all your friends and 
they encourage you until like when you are ready to do it. And then they say like, hey, wait a minute, but you know, like, <laughs> what are we doing here too? But I think like um, in, in my case, I didn't have like a lot of resistance from my family. And I think like people around were listening to me, but they were not really believing what I was saying. You know, when I was just here going to my local pub and telling my friends, uh, yeah, I'm going to hitchhike to Afghanistan. Yeah, they knew I had done it around the country and I've been to Europe. But I think they really, probably they uh, underrated my, <laughs> my power of will. You know, they say, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course you will. Yeah, sure. In another life, man. Like, so nobody really took it serious enough to even go as far as like trying to stop me. You know what I mean? Like, but um, the thing is, probably some people were worried about in the economic sense, rather, um, probably because of the regional scenario we have here in South America, in which... Like when you are like middle class, you really have to worry your ass off to keep that status and make it better than your parents did, you know. And then I was at university and, and yeah, and, you know, and stopping a, a career at university to go hitchhiking wasn't something very usual you would see here. And then I didn't have the answer for the question of what are you going to do for a living? Because I didn't have the answer for myself. Like when I started... You didn't have all the resources you have now, like, you know, affiliate marketing, like blogs and um, podcasts and stuff. Like you, I opened a blog spot, you know, it was year 2005. That was the first travel blog in Argentina. There was no other guy doing something similar here. And I was like posting and then just typing and hitting publish. And then some people would come and like anonymous, you know, you would see like you wouldn't know who they were. It was like shouting in the void, you know, and then some people would answer like, hey, yeah, we are reading you. Oh, there's life behind this other, you know, it's like receiving like some radio signals from Mars or Jupiter, you know, that, that was the sense of being a blogger in 2005. I didn't know how to monetize that. That came like 10 years later, probably. I mean, like, well, not 10, but like five, six years later that I started to be able to, to say, hey, yeah, I can start making a living out of this. But in the beginning, it was just like, you know, well, eating my savings away. Mm. <laughs> So in the beginning, you were sitting there saying, all right, I want to travel. I'm going to blog just because I can, right? I can hit publish and, and we'll see how it goes. And then you were saying, okay, you know, let me just continue to travel as long as I can until you were able to, to make it something that now is sustainable. So what does is, what is your current reality look like now? Are you, do you have a home base in Argentina? Are you, tra are you still, do you still consider yourself nomadic? So I do have a base in Argentina, and this is very recent. I'm probably this like since 2015. It's five years, which is recent in my scale of like I mean, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's 15 years since I started, so it's like relatively recent. So uh, and the reason why I decided to get a base was uh, it was because I was taking more and more seriously the, all the uh, book writing process. So mainly my way of sustaining myself and travel is by selling my books, travel story books, from my blog and Instagram account and stuff like that. Uh, and it was, I think, wise to take the decision to, to make a, a base and a studio and a place where I can have like my archives or archives, I don't know how you say that, uh, with uh, travel notes, maps and stuff like that. Because it was becoming increasingly difficult to fetch for those old uh, book notes, you know, in that I had left in some family place. It was, you know, complicated when I wanted to gather all the things, the ingredients. But, of course, I'm still doing, like, you know, long trips. Like, the last long trip was, like, 15 months uh, hitchhiking across Africa. 
from Egypt to South Africa. Uh, that was like in the, the end of 2017. And now for the last two years, I have been quite involved in like the writing the book about that trip. So I was just doing small one, two month trips around. <laughs> again, it's all relative. Small yeah. one to two month <laughs> trips around, right? Which, which again, I for know. you, yeah, that's small. Like you go off on a big expedition, let's call it, or a big mission, right? And, and going around Africa for 15 months, come back and then do some of these small trips. I want to talk, obviously you're still hitchhiking and, and that's still one of your modes of transportation, one of your preferred modes of transportation. So let's talk about this idea of hitchhiking because you brought up a very good point in the beginning of, you know, in the US, it's certainly not common. And, you know, I, I think our mindset in the US is, oh yeah, like 60s, 70s, everyone hitchhiked, my parents hitchhiked, you know, this or that. But if I was going to go tell them I was going to hitchhike now, they'd probably look at me crazy, even though they did it. So, you know, but but in other parts of the world, it is it is way more common, way more normal. So for you, what are some of the areas that you've been to that have seemed, I, I yeah, let's say that are the easiest to hitchhike through or the most common to hitchhike through? And then what other areas have you been to where it's not common and maybe it was maybe it was a bit more of a struggle? Sure. Um, so yeah. Um, Actually, I do have some statistics about it, so I can answer you with the tranquility conferred by me by the kingdom of statistics and mathematics. So since 1998, I've been recording every ride. Right. So that's like 2,450 rides. Okay. Um, I always, yeah, I always take note of how uh, of the waiting time, what car and type of type of make of car the name of the driver, his profession, and stuff like that. So, um, in top of the list, we have like a, a very <laughs> unlikely country, which is like the Faroe, uh, Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic. And they got like a four minutes average waiting time, which is like ridiculous. Uh, I know, wait, 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 I'm giving you the old answer. Sorry, this was the answer until like uh, August last year. It was uh, suddenly overcome by Chechnya. Wow. Okay, so Chechnya is, is the the quickest average ride time in your whole professional career of hitchhiking. Exactly. <laughs> All right. No, no other place, uh, and I will tell you a few other places now that are also quite fast and good for hitchhiking, but none of them can actually overcome Chechnya. It was like two minutes, and then most likely thing will happen if you get a ride in Chechnya is the driver, because he will feel responsible for you. He will not let you out there hitchhiking. He will stop take your backpack out of the car, pull his thumb out, I'll hitchhike for you. He will probably have someone in common with the next driver, so he will he, he will be some acquaintance, or he will mention he's from this clan, or that tribe, or that little village, and he will act as a guarantee that, you know, that. so he will put you in the next car, and then, like, police checkpoints and stuff like that, everyone will just take care of you, so they will just take you in the direction you want to go. It's just like you are a free-flowing, you know, free-flowing on a motorway or, so that was amazing, uh, probably because of like the social tissue of Chechnya makes it that way and affects the dynamics of hitchhiking. But also like Jordan, Iraq, they have mostly Middle Eastern countries have like an average waiting time of between seven and 12 minutes, roughly. Like Syria was really good before the war. I haven't been back there, there after the war, but Syria, Jordan, uh, Iraq, like, yeah, five, seven to... 12 minutes waiting times. And the worst countries, let me think about this one. Uh, 
I think Scandinavian, so there are two reasons why a country can be a terrible place for hitchhiking. One is there are no cars at all. So basically it's like Afghanistan and Tibet is like you can stand out there for a couple of hours. Uh, Tibet has my worst average waiting time, I think it's like three hours. But that's basically because there's no one coming, you know. You may wait. And I wasn't like in Lhasa. I entered Tibet from the west in a forbidden route from Kashgar. I bribed the police into China. I, and then I was waiting for yeah hours in Western Tibet. There's, I mean, Tibet alone, it's, it's isolated. Western Tibet is middle of nowhere. Uh, there's a road called uh, 219 of the Chinese road network, which is supposed to be like the most isolated road on the planet. And that was three, four hours a day waiting for a truck to come up on the horizon. And chances were, chances were the guy wouldn't be able to take you because they have for they are forbidden from taking tourists or foreigners. So it was like a, a lot of logistics difficulties. And same with Afghanistan. Same with Afghanistan. Very few cars. I think Afghanistan is like the the carless, the most carless country in the world. It's one car every thousand inhabitants. So yeah. Yeah, so that was quite challenging. And that was the reason why I do it, actually. I mean, for me, hitchhiking is like champagne. Nobody needs champagne. You just crave for it, you know? It's like giving an helicopter to a, a, a guy who climbs mountains. He doesn't want to reach it in the morning. He wants to climb it, you know? Like, let me do it. Uh, so, so yeah, that's kind of the answer. So for you, it is the challenge. Like, some people listening will say, Oh, well, I mean, why would you put yourself in a situation where you're going to wait three, four hours and then the guy can't pick you up anyway? And you're saying, well, that's what I want. Like, that's what I'm doing that. I'm doing it specifically for that. Maybe not for them not to pick you up, but you're saying, I want to see if what it's like to hitchhike in an area that's going to be very hard to hitchhike in. That for sure. But also, even in normal situations, like why would you hitchhike in West Virginia? <laughs> or, and, and that was the first place where I hitchhiked in the United States. So uh, all, my, all, my, all my greetings for people in West Virginia, if someone is listening, uh, and Kentucky as well. Huh? I really like Kentucky. Uh, so uh, um, basically, when you are hitchhiking, people have, let's make an inversion of like, perspectives. People think you're out there in the road and you're begging for transportation which in somehow, somehow you are, but you're not. And that's my point. When you are hitchhiking, you're actually filtering. You are putting a filter because people who will stop is not just anyone, and you don't want anyone to stop as well. I mean, hitchhiking, what enables me, what give, gives me, it's like a, a chance to interact with a random sample of the inhabitants of every country. Uh, so it forces me to depend on the help of strangers, and this is what gives me like an intimate look in everyday life in any random country. And as a writer, this is like for me like a majestic tool for like social exploration. This is what gives me and opens up the doors of a country. And this is how I can understand what's really going on in Iran, what really people think about the government when the doors are closed and you are within a closed door in a private environment, like the drivers invite you to their homes, you know, or you're in a car. And people are in a little private bubble. They can speak whatever they want. They they just speak out their culture. You know, they become the representative of their culture. You know, about. so for me, it's like the basic way in my, my my most important approach in order to to understand a new country. Yeah, I love that perspective. You're saying I am going to find more interesting people in the, the in this country because those will be the people who are going to stop for me anyway. People who 
who either want to show off their country or want to, you know, talk to someone who's not the same day to day people they always talk to. And so you're saying, yeah, I'm I'm selecting out like I'm getting those type of people almost every time because they've they've already vetted themselves by stopping for me. Exactly. It's like you cannot book those experiences on you know on any platform. There's no platform to book that. I think it's like my drivers have been like everything from like you know Latin American, uh, European, you know uh, uh, Kalasha tribesmen of the Pakistani mountains and uh, and work wise they have been everything from like Buddhist monks, uh, uh, boxers, opera singers, fashion designers, and designers of robots that s- specifically can play soccer. You know where else would you meet? You know, like a, a guy that designs robots that can play soccer. I mean, like just anything, or, you know, or, or the Buddhist monk taking you to his, you know, to his retreat. And it's you know, things you cannot pay for. They're invaluable to me. And I wouldn't have been able to write my books without hitchhiking, basically. Yeah, a lot of times we get asked the question, like, how do you have these authentic experiences? And how do you, you know, how do you go to a place and and really get to experience it versus, you know, what everyone else is seeing? And we always say, like, the more you put yourself out there, whether that be through hitchhiking, whether that be just walking down the road without your phone in front of your face, whether it be going to a random street stall that you saw and it was all locals and you're a little intimidated because you have no idea what's happening, but you think, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, like um, getting on a motorbike and just getting out of the main area where the other tourists are, you know, any of those type of things. And obviously for you, like yours is hitchhiking. You're saying, I am going to have an experience that's going to be way more closer to the ground level of that culture, probably as close as you can get. I mean, it's a pretty intimate experience, right? You're getting, someone's letting you in their car, you're not just going to sit there and not talk, right? So um, you're getting as close as you can to really trying to almost force an authentic experience to happen, which is what you're doing through hitchhiking. Exactly. So um, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, you basically even sometimes you even spend like days with the driver because they, they invite you to their homes, you know, like in, in places like Iran where like hospitality is so, you know, fears <laughs> that it's like uh, probably you know, people is aw- afraid of Iran, but I think like the like of being kidnapped or some stupid thing like that. But I think their way of kidnapping is like hospitality. You know, they take you to their home and then there is a cousin who wants to visit and then the cousin wants you to visit <laughs> his cousins. And then you get passed on from hands to hands, from village to village. And actually you have to make a cut if you actually want some privacy or to go to a hotel from time to time. Because it's like Sudan. Sudan is the same. You don't have the chance to be on your own, even if you try to. I mean, if you start on, on this, to doing things this way, probably if you just land in an in, in airport, get a transfer to the hotel, then you will not meet anyone. But if you just expose yourself to the local elements, you will get, you know, in this flow, in this dynamic. Right. What is What should people be aware of? Like, f- whether it be first-time hitchhikers or people who haven't done it a lot, about kind of the etiquette and the rules and the manners of of hitchhiking because you mentioned a good point there of there might even come a point where the hospitality becomes too much like you have to get on your way or you have somewhere you want to go and you're not going to spend days you know just staying at someone's house so what are some of the rules that that you always try to follow when it comes to hitchhiking in general things be to be a good hitchhiker, you you try to do these things for the people who pick you up. 
Sure. So now I think like the first scenario that you mentioned that I mentioned before that you get like trapped in these little <laughs> chains of hospitality, it's likely to happen in very specific places, like I said, Sudan and Iran. And, uh, but uh, I think if someone goes there and hitchhikes, you're kind of looking for that. I mean, that's the reason why you see normally these places. You want to dip into these societies. And, but generally speaking, like an advice, and actually there's a lot of things to say about that. Like normally, uh, some people may have this idea that hitchhiking is about luck, just sticking out your thumb there. And, but when you rely on hitchhiking to cover like tremendous amounts of distances and you have to do it quickly and safely, it's not just about luck. You know, you cannot have luck 500 times altogether. So there are rules that you that apply, or let's say there are things that you can do to improve and get a ride much faster. Like sometimes I listen to people that spend like two hours to get a ride, and maybe I spend 10 minutes, but when I when they tell me what they did, they say, okay, sure, that's why you <laughs> were waiting for two hours. So it's like, so first of all, you have to, it's a lot about attitude and not about just like, okay, sticking out the thumb. It's about like, uh, visual contact, you know, visual contact, your attitude, smiling. I think there are a lot of psychological, uh, actually my studies before becoming like a traveling writer was in psychology. So I could use a bit of that as well into my personal method. Um, people, so if someone is smiling to you and looks happy, it's that attitude, it's like incompatible with like, you know, with the intention of causing damage. So it wouldn't be, you know, you kind of can read and scan people's intention and faces, and that's how humans have been able to survive over the last million of years, right? So it's not nothing really new. You kind of look at people and know, so you should be like smiling, of course, you stick out your thumb. You have to choose, pick a place where cars can slow down, and more important than that even, where they have a place to stop, because you cannot like hitchhike in the motorway where uh, if a car stops, you know, all the other ones are going to make like a chain accident or so you have to have a quick look at, you know, what's the scenario around you. And then uh, the way you put your backpack even has an, an incidence because like if you throw all your things around, you know, around you without any order and you just look very, you know, it looks very odd from, from the driver's point of view. So you should be like tightly uh, positioned uh, in a place where the cars slow down, where they have a place to stop. You may have a sign if you are actually next to a junction where cars may take different directions. Uh, this is like very obvious. And then a little trick I do is like when a car is approaching and I am as I am smiling and thumbing, when I do the eye, eye contact, I reinforce my sign gesture and I change it. I switch it from a thumb gesture to point in the direction in which I'm going at the same time that I'm making like eye contact. So. I also stand out of the, uh, how to say, like the, okay, that's the role of the hitchhiker, he's hitchhiking there, but he's not talking to me, he's just hitchhiking, you know? I make it personal with the driver. I make it personal. I look into him and point the road in the direction I'm going. So he, he feels questioned and he feels like talked to. Um, and yeah, and then just, you know, dress tightly. I think that you have average like three to five seconds or the driver to make a decision. So everything that you can communicate in these five seconds, it's golden, you know, and will change his mind. And something I do also in a new country, I make a sign, which is not a sign saying where I'm going. It's a more like unspecific sign. And it just says, for example, traveling. I did it in the United States, for example. And it would say traveling the US from Argentina. And I would put the American flag and the Argentinian flag. 
and that will make a difference. So people say, oh, hey, he has a, a reason for it. But, you know, but yeah. the, the hitchhiking in the U.S., What's another chapter? Then you can ask me about it. <laughs> yeah, we, we can get into Yeah, I definitely want to get into hitchhiking in the U.S. for sure. But that's a really interesting thing that you do. And I don't want people to gloss over that if you, if you are interested in hitchhiking at all. Yeah, giving them a story right off the bat. Not like, hey, going to Louisville, Kentucky. But I'm from Argentina. I'm traveling around. Like people are saying like, oh, he's in our country. This is cool. He's like, I want to show him this. And of course, you know, being Argentinian or being out from that, not from that country or even from that region, it's neat for those people then. Like they get to have an experience and a chat with someone from somewhere that maybe they've been before, but chances are probably not. And so, you know, maybe they're even on their morning commute or coming home saying, oh, I get to have a chat with an Argentinian today, you know, and, and, you know, maybe that just spurs them like, oh, that's really cool. Let me, let me pick them up. Um, you know, and they have, they get a little bit of their wanderlust satiated too, because now they get an opportunity to have an experience, even though they're in their home area that they wouldn't have had every single day. Exactly. Well, that, that's the idea you know, to make it part of the, of the trip itself. They travel through you. It's like a double, right? But actually I get a ride like in, in the U S like some guy who actually wanted to practice his Spanish, you know, he was like an uh, Anglican a uh, pastor, you said, like a pastor, yeah, from the church. Uh, uh, so he wanted to, he had been in Colombia for like a couple of years, so he spoke decent Spanish, and he wanted to practice, and he said, hey, this is a fall from Argentina, I have to give you a ride, so he turned around, made another two extra miles to turn around and came back and pick me up. And then he invited me to taste some local food in a restaurant, and we talked for hours, and so these things, you know, brings you closer to the community, and I think like that's like a, uh, a cool way to travel, and if you're a writer and you're looking for stories, well, there's a a good point to it. Yeah. What about the etiquette then when you uh, and kind of the rules and stuff that you follow after you do get picked up? So we talked about how, you know, some things to do to get picked up. But then after you do get picked up, are there certain things that you do to make the people feel comfortable? I mean, you've done over 2000 rides now, right? So there must be, is there some kind of like, uh, you know, system you have? Because I would imagine, honestly, I like talking to people, but if, if I went and hitchhiked today, one of the things I would be nervous about, maybe not just getting picked up, but then, okay, now that I'm picked up, what do I do? Like, I don't want it to seem like they're just doing me a favor. Of course they do me a favor, but I want to be able to give back too. Sure, of course. Um, because actually, you are giving back. It's like, it's not, it's not like traveling for free. It's like, there's an exchange. There's an exchange of things which are uncountable and they're like intangible, I think. Uh, which is like, you know, interaction company, several things like truck drivers. Oh, they crave for a company. You have, they have to drive for like 15 hours across the country. And our country is massive as well. We have like, you know, 4,500 kilometers north to south. So pretty much like the states west to east. And so it's like, you know, they want these guys want someone to talk to. Uh, but uh, not only truck drivers, I mean, just drivers in general. So when you get picked up, there are several things. I mean, you get all types of drivers, for example. I mean, some of them get more involved. Some of them are just making you the favor and not too talkative. But you can tell that by little things like, for example, when they turn down or up the volume of the radio, this, this can become a measure of how willing they are to talk, you know? When, they, they, when you said something interesting, you can instantly see how they put down the volume of the music or something. And then if there's no dialogue, for a couple of minutes, you will see how this guy goes and put up the volume as well, so to fill up the vacuum. But no, the thing is, 
I think that you have to introduce yourself always. Uh, travel has like a pur purpose. It, 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 there's a reason that, I mean, and most likely if you are listening to to, <laughs> to this podcast, you travel, you travel with, not just for, for fun for 10 days. Um, so, uh, which is fine as well, I mean, but, so I think that people were, get really interested when you, you explain them that, that, okay, that you are, you know, traveling their country in order like to, like in my case, uh, document hospitality and uh, try to write about it and make it more known in the outside world. For example, if you are in a little, you know, in Azerbaijan or in a little country, and then people understand that you, you will be like an ambassador to their country. And, you know, and then they really like get involved and talk and try to show you places. And so I think there's very little chances that you will get like, you know, in a car and there will be no dialogue unless you are not talkative yourself. And this also can mean that you can have to push your own limits and become more sociable. And, and it can be a good training for people who have some limited like social skills can be like a really challenging thing. But I think I just follow following the same rules you would use like in a pub or in a place where you're just engaging into a casual conversation with someone. I mean, I don't think that it's something like uh, very, very, very specific about how to keep up a dialogue in a car. Yeah. What about uh, hitchhiking by yourself versus with other people? I assume oh, throughout your journeys, you've hitchhiked with at least one other person at some point. What? Yeah. How does that change things? Um, so it's, yeah, indeed, I traveled for like many years with my uh, ex-partner, like we travel, like we did all South American, for example, South American uh, trip together. That was like 18 months hitchhiking around uh, South America. And it changes when you are in a couple, you get more rights by couples and families. Uh, it's fast, faster to hitchhike when you're in a couple, right? Because somehow... It inspires more trust that there is a girl involved, right? Uh, for some sociological reason or whatever, it, so it makes hitchhiking faster. And then I think it also because the experience of hitchhiking doesn't end when you get the ride; it finishes, it continues when actually the driver invites you to their home, for example, to his home, for example. And that happens more often when you travel with a couple. It's like I don't know why, but it, do, it does happen. And it opens you more gates somehow. I mean, it's different gates, you know, it's different like opportunities. And but you get more invited like to fa to family environments. And and if you're traveling, for example, in Muslim countries, and I could see the difference because I did like Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria when I was alone, and then I did like with my ex partner, we did like uh, Egypt, Sudan, uh, Somaliland, uh, and many other like coastal regions of Africa where the Muslim population is like more predominant and and in those cases we could, we could be invited to to the family and the fem female members of the family would still be present because normally when I was on my own I would be completely isolated from like the female part of the family right so I think it's uh, it, it changes and and then of course personally for you traveling with your companion it, it makes more for a I mean, it's easier to travel for a longer time because you're more contained. But at the same time, there's the risk that you get self-contained in the dialogue of the couple or of the part of your partner, and then you get you forget to make links with the outside people. You know, so when you are alone, you are more forced to interact. Yeah, that's the positive thing. Yeah, of traveling alone. Yeah, definitely. and and makes you know kind of the same 
thing with solo travel, whether it hitchhiking or or not, right? It's like if you're solo and and you want to meet people, which most of us eventually will, will want to, you do have to push yourself out of the comfort zone. You're a little more approachable because you're just one person. So people don't assume that you already like have your group and you don't, they don't need to be around you. But it, it, it can also be harder because you're, you need to constantly be meeting new people and you don't have that little safety blanket of, of another person um, that you know. Uh, one of the things you talked about is hitchhiking in the U.S. Let's talk about that for a second because then I, wanna, I want you to compare that or, or kind of tell us about hitchhiking in you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, like places that if you're from the Western world, you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe he hitchhiked through there. Uh, so we'll <laughs> sure. see. First, let's talk about the U.S. though. You, you've done hitchhiking through the U.S. My guess is that it was one of the more difficult countries. I don't know. You tell me. How does it compare to other countries? And and what was it like? As uh, yeah, what was it like compared to all this other two thousand other rides that you've gotten throughout your uh, your career here? So I was really anxious and you know curious about hitchhiking in the United States. Uh, first of all, I have to say, like out of the 95 countries I have been to, the U.S. was, I think, number nine, 89 or 90. I don't remember. So I'm, I'm kind of a late you know, arrival. In the, I, I had never been there and I, I was curious about. I mean, but, you know, you always try to choose like more exotic destinations or that's my travel style. So I was more interested in, you know, like you know, Romania, Afghanistan, whatever. Like, but it's always cheap to travel to the U.S., but I never really... But then came like, you know, a couple of things happened and I had to go to, to actually to record like a podcast and for some uh, press related issues and stuff like that. So I had to go. I said, yeah, sure. I'm going to take some time off and visit like a old buddy from Kentucky. So I hitched from Washington, actually Arlington, Virginia to Louisville, Kentucky. And it was, I think it was like almost like uh, 700 miles, something like that. And I was a little afraid because I had this monster idea of the U U.S. network of uh, uh, motorways, you know, like a big knot of motorways with 16 lanes each way. And that was like, you know, like I, I felt like a, a, like, a, like a first time doing something while hitchhiking. That doesn't happen to me often, you know, like I'm really so confident about hitchhiking. I mean, you can drop me from a plane in a parachute, in, you know, in Zambia and I will hitchhike. I mean, but the United States was like, OK, this is a test, man, because I... But at the same time, the paradoxic thing was like, I grew up reading like, you know, big generation classics like Jack Kerouac. So I kind of knew, okay, someone here must have the hitchhiking chip you know, in his unconscious mind or something, because I, it was something also very common here. I think actually it's like part, very important part of the underground America and the way like Jack Kerouac described things, he made like a self portrait of America that no one had done before. That, that's why he became so popular. And so I was really interested, of course. And uh, so what I did is I first took like a small road. I, I wasn't like brave enough to start in the motorway. So I just took like a, a bus to a little like country road, like road number 50 of the Virginia road network or something like that. And so, and then I slowly like, so I think like in my, it took me like two days to make like half of the way, like two days to make like, I don't know, 350 miles. Which is like a lot of time, but I knew that was going to happen because that's the way it is when you take like minor roads. I mean, and then like when I jumped into the motorway, it actually was like faster, and I did it in the same day. I did like the other half, but the interesting thing was in the first half because what I noticed 
is two things. First, people were assuming that because I was hitchhiking, I was like a homeless beggar, a junkie, <laughs> needing for money. Like some people would stop and hand me like a $10 bill without me asking for anything. You know, like uh, actually a guy, a guy from uh, El Salvador, which is someone I can talk to in my own language. You know, I asked him for directions and he showed me where the road was. And, and then he came back and tried to give me like 20 bucks. I said, no, but I, I'm fine with, and just hitchhiking for fun. Like, like he like insisted to give me some money for the lunch. And, and so one, the first thing I noticed was that, and it was hard because like, it's like I'm not used to be put in that position, you know, and to 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 know that the people who are looking at me are looking at me in that way, you know, like an outsider, not an outsider. I'm always an outsider, but like someone who cannot, you know, mm. come come to terms with society or like. <laughs> yeah, like they're looking at you like you need to hitchhike. Where so you're saying in other countries that's not the case, really? They it's like it, yeah. it's more common. So it's like oh, a hitchhiker, whatever. They could be anyone. Yeah. They just need a ride. It's like you're doing it for adventure. People will assume you're just doing it for adventure, and right. yeah, probably you want to save some money. But there's nothing wrong with you. But I felt that in the U.S., people were thinking there was something wrong with me. Right. Like, why uh, is he doing this versus uh, exactly. versus? It's wow. like you have to prove why you're doing it versus exactly. somewhere else. No one cares why you do it. They just pick you up. Exactly. Huh. Or, or they don't. But they don't. Pick you, but they don't care too much. But, <laughs> right. but I think. <laughs> but I think like in the in the U.S., like one possible answer for why you are hitchhiking is like, well, guys, you don't have like a public transport, and that was some, something so amazing for me, like because I was expecting like from a rich country, you know, to like you know you go to Europe, like rich countries have like a super like Germany, like the best possible railway and bus system anywhere, and so oh no, all you got is this Greyhound thing, whoa, like <laughs> looks like you know like, very old and. But and and expensive, but okay, that was not the answer in my case. I mean, I was just hitchhiking for fun. But the thing is, like, um, what I, the positive thing is, like, the people that do pick you up, they have like a very special sense of community. It's not just anyone. And I could see there is like a, or in my humble opinion, of course, I'm not like a sociologist or nothing like that. Please, it's just my opinion as a writer. But I feel that there is like, like a repressed need for interaction sometimes because you know the way our societies become increasingly and increasingly more in the, uh, self let's say independent people are, are more and more independent and not interdependent so it's like you got everything you need you don't have to knock the door of your neighbor to ask for sugar because you have you just click about them and amazon takes sugar in a drone to deliver to your doorstep and you don't need anyone so on the reverse side, if you don't need anyone's help, no one will be needing yours. So then how do you prove your value to your community? And this is something we are carrying in our, in our DNA, in our tribal DNA, since we were like groups of small reduced group of mammals or apes surviving there in the forest and we need to rely on each other's help. And this sense of community has been increasingly being lost in the way Western society is developing. And I, I also belong to society like among Argentinians like you know we are I'm not talking from the other this is the same but it's a bit delayed I think like in the US it's probably like the the, the the edge of the wave the edge of the wave in which sometimes people are getting too more independent so people to go back to the issue because I'm making a little detour here to go back to the issue of hitchhiking in the US I feel like the drivers way or another they were involved in communities for example this pastor Anglican pastor then I got a, a ride with coal miners and coal miners, actually, they told me, like, when we are down, down in the mile, 
in the mind. We re we are a family. He said like several times that like, we rely on each other, you know. So coal miners, and then I got, got a ride with the musicians. Actually, my first night in you, I had to say something about the U.S. And my first night, I was invited to a house and invited accommodation by my drivers. And I wasn't expecting that to happen. I was expecting to open up my tent in the middle of nowhere. But these uh, musicians from Western Virginia, uh, somewhere near Charleston, I think, uh, they gave me a ride. And they right away say, oh, you're hitchhiking now. You came to our home. We make a delicious dinner. We're going to tell stories by the bonfire. We're going to... So, but they belong to a community, you know, alternative indie music community in a little town. So that's my little confession, you know, or truck drivers. That's my little confession about the U.S. is that most of the drivers that I get and most of the rides were with people who were more sensible to the idea of community. Wow. That's, that's a really cool point. And I think that you, it's something that you saw just, just in that short little trip in the U.S., but I think it makes sense, right? Uh, you know, as you said, the U.S. is kind of on the, the front edge of the wave when it comes to getting everything easiest, fastest, what have you, you know, and, and we don't have to rely on other people and, and you lose that sense of community. I mean, I can say that even in my own life, sitting here in my house, you know, I see my neighbors, you know, I exchange pleasantries, but I don't need them, you know, for anything usually. And, and it's kind of a sad thing because they probably have a lot of skills that I could use and, and vice versa. And so it's interesting that you then were picked up by people who are doing hobbies or professions that lend itself to this or, or idea of community. Yeah. Many military people in the U.S. give me rights. And I think like the military, they are the perfect example of people who live in a tribal system within a country which is not tribal because it's like, you know, they are like, uh, you know, they live in little, little groups and they rely on each other. And, and I get not only in the U.S., but in many countries, the military are one of them. Like I, I can see that in my statistics are one of the groups that give you the most rights as well. OK, yeah, because it's like a it's, a it's a bond, right? Like it's a it, they have a bond with these with other people in the military that people who are not in the military don't understand. Right. And so they kind of live. You know, I don't want to say on the fringes of society because they're they're obviously a big part of society, but they do something that that a lot of people won't understand. Similar to like you're hitchhiking, a lot of people won't understand that, haven't done it, haven't experienced it. So there's this kindred spirit between you and them because you're doing something different from the norm. Yeah, I will make a little detour here because there's a little short anecdote about one truck driver that gave me a ride in Spain. And this was like many years ago. He had been in the Gulf War he, because Spain was involved there and he had been in the Foreign Legion. And this guy was like so, you know, unreconciliated with his own society that he was like, you know, in the edge of becoming, you know, crazy a bit. And he gave me the ride and I spent two days in his truck going all the way from Barcelona to Genoa in Italy. And he had to share so much with me because he had no choice but... So he got to share a lot in two days. And then he told me, like, when I am out of my truck, I never, like, really talk to people. I go out of the gas station and buy, come back. And and he got too attached. That attached that when I left, the guy, he pulled the truck to the side of the road and he was crying over the wheel. Wow. And that's that's when you realize, like, okay, yeah, hitchhiking is just not traveling for free. So you're actually giving something to people and there's, like, a two-way interaction. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You're giving them a, a, yeah. a look into their own life sometimes just by being just by being there for them to be able to, yeah. to spill to. Uh, that's, sure. I'm here. I was looping looping back to. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's incredible. What about Moving back then, to whatever we're talking before? Yeah. Yeah. What about then the 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 quote unquote? I'm I'm putting these in quotes so everyone knows the crazy countries, right? Because I'm not saying they're crazy. I'm saying what we see about them lends people to say, oh, I can't believe you would go there. Right. Like when you say I'm going to hit, I'm going to go to the US, no one's probably saying, oh, I can't believe you're going to go there. But you're saying, I'm going to Iraq, I'm going to Pakistan, I'm going to some of these Middle Eastern countries where, you know, what we see on our Western news is going to be very different from what's on the ground. So t- tell us a little bit about hitchhiking through there and what your perception is, because your whole idea is that you want to show the other side of what of of these countries, not what's on the news. So when you got there, was it what you expected? How was it the same of what, what you expected? How was it different? So, yeah, the whole idea of actually my first long trip that I started in 2005 and lasted like 27 months. So the main goal of that trip was to cross uh, Syria, Iraq, Iran and Afghanistan, um, Pakistan and etc. by hitchhiking in order like to document hospitality because I felt that in that moment, just portraying something just simple as everyday life had like a, even a political balance, you know, like a political value. Because the, the stereotype around was the country was just people burning flags, American flags, mm-hmm. in front of the, the the embassy and, you know, just all these things and angry mobs. So, no, the decision was like uh, to go there. And it was amazing. I have to say it was amazing. That was, that was like the one experience that transformed me as a person the one traveling experience that transformed me as a person because it made me like uh, regain or recover my faith in mankind when you go to the place where you're supposed to meet the most terrible people, where everyone is supposed to be hostile, and then like you enter like Afghanistan you know, or, 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 or Syria, for example, is like the most gentle country I have ever seen. Or I should go back now to see how people have something has changed, but I I think people basically don't change in their in their core or values. And in Syria, people would run behind me, like the vendors of the in the bazaar, to give me like a free orange or come to sit down and have tea with me for no reason. I hadn't even looked at them in the eye. They were just like some little guy would be just you know behind me and, and tells me, points me in the direction of his uncle's shop. And when I look there, the uncle would be that guy with the turban making a sign to come here, come and sit down to have tea with us and just for no reason. And that would happen like several times a day. Uh, I once witnessed like uh, two people wrestling for the honor. I mean, I, I'm not saying for they would they would perceive it as a honor to receive like a foreign guest in their homes. Of course, I was I, I don't deserve like to be like a honor. Or, but I mean, like they were I was in a little village. I arrived. And two guys came separately in a little motorbike, and each of them had like reasons to, oh, no, you should come to my house because I want to practice English. Oh, no, because my um, my cousin and my uncle really want you to meet you because they've seen they are from outside. And so I got to the point in which one day I got invited. I was hitchhiking. I entered like a little shop to buy some water. Some guy came and said, oh, do you want to have lunch with us? And yeah, it was lunchtime. So, yeah, sure, why not? I, I went to our home. In that this was on the way to Deresor, which is like a city in eastern Syria. Uh, and this was like a little village uh, populated by Ismaili Muslims. So they're like a minority and they're much more relaxed about, like, for example, the guy's sisters, they were around me and they were not like, you know, separate rooms. All the family was together. They were drinking beer. Uh, so, wow, I was like, wow, what the hell? 
I'm so these guys, I had lunch with them, and when I was about to leave, although then they insisted I would stay like a, a second night, which I did, and when I finally left, they said like, okay, Juan, uh, even though uh, just even though we will not see you again, just because you have shared lunch and the food with us, you are part of our family. And I was struck, and I was struck again when the civil war in Syria began, because then the more you travel, the more your capacity of empathy grows, and then you have more family around. Let's say this traveling family. So then you get more, you know, oops. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to remember Syria, travels in Syria after all that has happened. And, but um, going back to your question, wonderful things happen. On my first night in Iraq, for example, like I enter Iraq, and probably this works like a definite answer for the question and for your point because uh yeah people would think like if you go to these countries yeah it's like uh warm torn countries in which you can walk around alone and so i enter iraq at night i promised myself i wouldn't do that i promised myself oh no i'm gonna go in the daylight in the early morning you know with a proper map and everything prepared i will try to find like a couch surfing contact on the other side or whatever although there was no couch surfing when i was there it was just it was, there was another system before that Hospitality club, and um, so. But now, in the end, I arrived at, in, the, in the late afternoon, and of course, with all the migration customs and stuff like that, it became dark. I entered the place. Okay, so okay, I'm in Iraq. It's night. I don't have local currency. I don't have a map. So I look for a place like a real cheap budget. Like I think I paid two dollars in a shared room, and I was sharing room with two local bricklayers from Mosul, the other big city nearby. Uh, I spoke some Arabic. I, by the time I had been in Syria for like two months and two months in Egypt, I could like get by with Arabic, basic Arabic, but I could get by. So these guys kind of get me like the basics, like, yeah, try to avoid this area, go there, not go there. Uh, but the next day, so when I actually hit the road, so okay, I, I'm fresh here in you know, daylight, hitchhiking in the um, Kurdish autonomous region in northern Iraq. Uh, I had managed to get like, a cheap, uh, like a map, like a school map. You know, these maps were like kids. Have, they have these little drawings of like camels and oil fields, so they learned their natural resources and the school maps. And barely had some roads there, but okay, that was all I got. Uh, then I hit, and then I get a ride with the guy that happened to be because it had started to rain, so I covered in a place. Okay, this guy, this guy gave me a ride, and he happened to be like the cousin of the president of the parliament. Let's say like the Kurdish region has its own parliament. And they have their own president and vice president and stuff. So he was the cousin to the president. And he when he listened to my story and he said, like, oh, but you are in a kind of like peace mission because you came to visit us. Because he asked me, why, why do you visit us? And I say, well, uh, you are a new country. Well, actually, indeed, they're not a new country because they're not completely independent, but like a fully fledged country. But almost they are. You know, it's like Kurdish. They have their own flag, their parliament, their own rules. So he was so proud, you know, that I had mentioned that, oh, you are a new country, that he said, no, now you are an official mission and we're going to take you to the capital. So, you know, they took me to the to the capital, like an official car. I was received by the vice president in the parliament with a national white TV filming my entrance to the parliament and greeting the vice president in his studio. <laughs> and then he asked me the same thing that you today. How is about hitchhiking? And we were we were being transmitted live in TV, in Iraqi TV, and I was explaining how to hitchhike. So I think that was probably the most absurd and wonderful 
thing that happened to me while traveling, and that's always, it's always my top top three. And, and that so. and that's your your first real full day in Iraq. in Iraq. Yeah, your first yeah. full day in Iraq after a night of not knowing what to do, and you're then <laughs> at the uh, Parliament Building and doing an exactly. interview. Yeah, on national TV. <laughs> How more welcome than that can you be? <laughs> right, right. No, that is crazy. And I think that probably obviously helped spur you on. I know you had done Syria and Egypt and stuff before that, but then you must be sitting there thinking, like, this is why I'm on this trip. Like, exactly for this reason, to be able to tell this story for years and years and years. So when people say Iraq, it's not just what you see on the news. It's, oh, my gosh, Juan has this crazy story of, of, of being on that TV and just trying to spread that, that word. That for sure, yeah, that was like a, like a sign of that I was okay, I'm in a good path, I have to continue this trip. And then when I reached Afghanistan, of course, I was really, really uh, like afraid again, or even though I was acquainted with like Muslim societies, I, would, I was a bit like afraid of enter Afghanistan because of all the countries that I visited in that trip was the one that was more still like with the, you know, with a convulsion or with the problems inside, the Taliban were still active in the South, there was the military bases of the NATO were there, and there were some conflicts. But at the same, like in my first night, I was really afraid. Uh, um, by the way, all these things uh, were part of the first book, which is called uh, Hitchhiking in the Axis of Evil. And on my first day in Afghanistan, uh, I was really afraid. And then I entered, did the customs, get my passport stamp, started walking on the roadside, looking at people, no, people were like really, really surprised. Like they could really couldn't believe there was someone like a Westerner without a military uniform and walking there just on the roadside and asking for transportation. Like that taxi driver pulled his very old 1980s Toyota Corolla to try to solve the ride. And I said, no, just keep checking. So yeah, whatever, come to my home. And so he took me to the place. Um, so the anecdote before to this one was like the spectacular, right? Like, oh, the president, the vice president. This was like a the average experience in a Muslim country. You know, the guy invites you home, he, you arrive to the place, he introduced me to his father, like a very old man with a white beard, turban. The guy takes his hand to the chest in a way that is, it is so typical of Muslim countries that now, even when I want to say thank you, it happened to me that I take my hand to the chest. I just adopted that sign from, from them, you know? It's like, it feels so sincere when they do this, when they, when they really, you know, really available to host you and they want to talk to you and so my first night there in this little village called Islam Calais near the Iranian border they were great people but at the same time it was my first night in Afghanistan I was so freaking afraid I have to be honest with yeah, you yeah sure it's not that I, I'm not a superhero like, I, right. I was afraid yeah because they were nice but they could also be selling me to the Taliban and I knew these things happen and maybe it's just one percent of population so what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that there are no terrorist groups in the world. That's not my message. My message is that 99% of people are great. But I was afraid. I was afraid of stumbling upon the other 1%. So, you know, I was there and we finished the dinner and we were playing cards. That Again, I barely learned to understand the game. Playing cards with them. Then everyone left and I was left there with my sleeping bag in the middle of a, a mad brick house. No lightning. I could see in the middle of night people approaching to me, crouching and, and staring at me. How look? They were coming to see how the foreigner was sleeping, you know. And I would look at them with a half eye open, and I would 
okay, it's better to continue sleeping because if I if I if they see I'm awake, they will want to talk, you know. <laughs> but I was afraid. I have my Swiss Army knife behind my pillow, under my pillow, because as a stupid, you know, sense of security, I could. There's nothing I can do against the Taliban with with a Swiss Army knife if they would come. But I would say, okay, at least I have a chance if someone tries to kidnap me. And in the following morning, these people were actually waiting for me with the best breakfast they could gather in town, probably. And I was feeling so guilty that the rest of the month that I spent hitchhiking across Afghanistan, that was an amazing month of traveling, really adrenalinic. And I, I, I did the crossing by a, a small unpaved road. That was like this, like people, when I, I, was, I was telling people in Herat, in the first city in Afghanistan, I was tr taking this road, and themselves they were afraid because they it's the kind of like unruly area with tribal things going on and it's not very very stable. But on the rest of the trip, I had many times reasons to be possibly afraid, but I, I tried not to, you know, to distrust the people who were helping me, and I think that kept kept me going somehow in a good energetic path, and I reached Kabul like a month later with many, many, many anecdotes in the middle, of course. But. Of course. Yeah. I, and which is pretty incredible. And, and all, like you said, you have a ton of anecdotes. A lot of those are in the book. So we can, you know, people can grab that, but I love that you have this crazy uh, experience in Iraq, right? And then you go to Afghanistan, you're still worried, but then you have a, what, as you mentioned, like the most normal experience you can kind of have hitchhiking where you just get invited back to someone's home, eat, play some cards, go to sleep. And so you have two sides of that coin, right? And yet they both speak to the hospitality of these countries where most people would say, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe Juan's there. Like, this is crazy. And you're saying, hey, I, I had, you know, a, a similar experience to what I would have anywhere. And th that's really the message, right? It's not any different. I, I, if anything, it's just... There, there's more hospitality in that region, as you mentioned, with, with Syria and, and stuff like that. I want to ask you, though, what your biggest travel mishap was. So what's an incident that happened to you, an anecdote where it's, you know, again, maybe it was a, a dicey situation or, or scary, or maybe it was just something you did that was really dumb that left you in a situation where you're like, oh, man, I can't believe I did this. <laughs> uh, let me try to remember. So, of course, probably there were several things going there. Uh, but mm, okay, one thing I will try to I, I would have to be fast and give you two answers. All right, good. <laughs> you know when you have too many too many things to to say and okay. That happens so, to me on this podcast all the time. Every listener will tell you I'm always giving too many answers. So you're you're in good company. You will have to edit this, man. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so uh, one thing was in Turkey in 2006, and I was looking for a place to camp. I arrived uh, at night too late to give a call to my couch surfing contact. I didn't want to do that. I knew there were a family. didn't want to wake them up at 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. So I just asked the guy at the, at the gas station where I could put my tent. And that's something I, I normally do to find accommodation. I just ask people where I can put my tent. And eventually someone will invite me to their home or I don't really use the tent that much. I normally try to use it too. But okay, that's like a separate issue. Uh, so the guy pointed to a building that, that was still being built. Uh, it was like an unfinished building. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. It wasn't the first time I would sleep in an unfinished building. So I get to the place, but decided that the moonlight was enough to see. I didn't took my flashlight out of the backpack 
I was too confident of myself, my capabilities. I entered the place, and as I was walking through an archway, I just started falling, free falling, you know, seconds and seconds falling. And I just couldn't think, okay, how how longer I'm going to be falling and, and where I am falling into. And that happened to be the future elevator shaft. There was no elevator yet, but they had, they had already built the shaft. So I fell there. <laughs> and I rolled in the air, in mid-air. I rolled because all the weight of my backpack made me uh, fall with my backpack, so I didn't hurt too much. But... I couldn't walk for five days. I was in bed. I didn't have any travel insurance in that time. I do have now. So guys, be smart and get one. <laughs> so I was shouting out from, from the shaft of the elevator until the same guy that had, was 100 meters away that had uh, advised me to go there, listen to me, you know, he hear me and came back. And I don't remember the moment in which he pulled me out of there or, or how he did it, but he did. I don't really remember. I was so shocked. And next thing, I was like begging for radiographies in a public hospital in Turkey, <laughs> bleeding and trying to to make to have like a doctor watching, looking at my because they, they did like the X-ray, but then no one didn't really want to look at the X-ray and explain me what had happened. So then I eventually found on the internet a, a woman that was like a vet for horses, specifically for horses, but I like through couchsurfing and. I said, okay, if, if she can understand the bones of horses, I mean, we are all mammals. Bones are not that difficult. She will know. So <laughs> I just contacted this bed for horses in Turkey, and that was my probably the stupidest situation in which I get involved myself. Did you? But did you have any? You didn't have any broken bones, luckily. No, no but yeah, but I, but I, I I had some other. You know, there are several degrees of things you can have before a broken bone. Right. Like a, like a little things which are not really broken, but. So I had like a little light, light injury, but I couldn't walk for probably three days. I, I didn't feel confident to walk. I stayed in bed. I called my coach up in contact. I stayed in his house and so on. And after that, I went to Iraq. So that, that was my, if you look at me in the way I was coming into Iraq, it looked as if I was coming out of Iraq with all the bandages. And, you know. <laughs> oh man. All right. So you fell down an elevator shaft in Turkey in yeah. the middle of the night, man. All right. That's Sorry. a good one. That is a mishap. That is okay, a mishap. But I have a better one. Go, all right. All right. Give it to us. <laughs> so, and this, uh, I, have to, I have to give a, um, in, in this anecdote, the credits are for my ex-partner to Laura because she was wiser than me. She was wiser than me. So we were in the border trying to cross from Somaliland to Djibouti. And Somaliland is like a separate, like a split, uh, how do you say? Like a breakaway republic. Uh, inside Somalia, there is Somaliland. And they are, by fact, like, independent, they have their own currency, flag, everything. It's, it just doesn't turn, show up in Google Maps, but it's there. It's like a separate country. And uh, we were trying to cross into Djibouti, and we knew that Somaliland was like a really, really corrupt country, and we were going to be trying to, to be bribed and stuff like that. But nothing happened until we... Actually, when we got the visa for Somaliland in Addis Abeba, in Ethiopia... They even gave us like a paper that said that if anyone wants to give you money, don't do it. It's illegal. So even they know that they are corrupt. So they give you like a like a waiver to pass through. The thing is that we got to this border in the middle of the desert after crossing in a land cruiser for like six hours. The desert, no roads. He was like really looking for his path in the desert. 
we got there uh, through this crumbling border post and the, the guy wouldn't let us away unless we would pay $60 each. <laughs> and we we show him the waiver paper and he said, oh, this waiver paper is false. Like, we do have these waiver papers, but they are blue. And this one is great. I don't know. It's photocopied or whatever. It's, it's fake. So you, you are going to go to jail for forgery of official documents of the Republic of Somaliland. That's the coolest thing I can get in the drowning to jail for. <laughs> I would put, probably put that you know certificate of going to jail in my to show to my grandchildren. But uh, but no, they were serious about it, and they grabbed our passports. And the worst thing I could do, and that's the mishap, and that was my stupidest move, is I first of all I I was like so. Uh, that my Italian blood came out, you know, that we Argentinians basically descend from Italian people and Spanish, and we are a mix of a bunch of things, but mainly Italian. And uh, my Sicily things came out and say, wait a minute, you're getting my passport, man? No, you don't even have a shirt crediting that you are from the border. I mean, you are just, he looked like a beggar, man. Like, he didn't look any different from the other guys in the street selling, you know, potato. I mean, he didn't look any different or any official. So I jumped over the desk and grabbed myself my passports and came back, make another jump out, get my backpack, get my girlfriend by the hand, and say, I, I'm crossing. So the guy next, the border guard with the gun, so this was the administrative guys, but the guy actually, the military guy, just took the Kalashnikov and pointed at us. You know, I was like freaking out, what do I do now, you know? And I kept walking, I kept walking to him, but he wouldn't fire, but he had like a mineral water, like a big, uh, one liter mineral water uh, bottle, and he hurled it to to us at full well, power. <laughs> so we had to 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 you know, to uh, to avoid the bottle flying in the middle of the air, and then all these guys came running to stop us, and and then she was wise and said, "Okay, no, 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 let's make it differently." He spoke, she spoke in Spanish to me. Nobody could understand that. So we're gonna play the bad cop and the good cop, and she was like okay, we're going to stay here. It's a nice place. And she started putting up the tent next to the border office. And she put the tent, you know, the sleeping bag. And the guy started to look worried, you know, are you really going to stay here? And, and she was like, well, look, you want like $120. You are a breakaway republic. You don't have ATMs connected to the international network. So we cannot get out of that money. As you can see, we don't have money. And it was true. We didn't have cash left. Because when you enter this country, you have to carry the, the cash from you beforehand. So you have to calculate. And we had run short of money because there is nowhere to withdraw money from inside the country. So we don't have that money, man. It's like either you, we live here and you grant us citizenship or you let us out or you, know, you can call my embassy. You know, that now is your problem, man. Now is your problem. And so next five minutes, the, gay, the guy started talking about soccer and about Maradona and Messi. And, you know, because Argentina is famous for football. And then we got into a different mood and they let us off. Wow. That, that was a credit for Laura. So I, that's my mishap and her cleverness. Yeah, I love that. You, you're you like, you know, you're the guy. You're like, we're going to get out of here, jump over desks, you know, try to use brute force. Pretty guy points a gun in your face. That, that all changes. And then she's like, yeah, well, let's just call their bluff. Basically, like, what are they going to do? We don't have money. Uh, they could throw us in prison all they want. We 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 still not going to have money, you know. They could. So it's like, yeah, you kind of put. It's, it's awesome. She put them in a spot where it was like, all right, now now you actually have to do some work. You're gonna have to do some work to get us in prison. You're gonna have to contact embassies. All right, or you could just let us walk across the border and we'll be gone forever. And uh, that's awesome. Yeah. She called their bluff. 
Nice. Exactly. She, she was making them work, you know, that, that yeah. was the least thing they wanted. <laughs> that is exactly, that is great advice for anyone going forward. Make someone who's... Work. Who's, yeah, make <laughs> someone work and you'll probably get through, right? Rather, rather than try to, you know, use brute force or make them look silly or stupid. Instead, try yeah. to make them do some work and uh, all of a sudden now, yeah, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't want to deal with this. Let them go. So... Um, awesome. Juan, great travel mishaps. I'm glad you gave us two because that second story was, uh, <laughs> was awesome. What do you have coming up next then? You, you talked a little bit about writing the second book. Is that what you're doing right now? So yeah, right now I'm, um, writing on the third book actually, because the first one is about Middle East. The second one is about South America, which is like a mix of travel book with motivational book, because we also tell the story of how, uh, we met each other and how we became nomadic. So there's this story behind threaded in the travel story. Uh, that book is called Caminos Invisibles in Spanish. If there's some Spanish speaker here, you can Google it. It's Caminos Invisibles. And now I'm working on the third book, which is about the, our Africa book. It's going to be written like four hands. So it, I'm re- write, uh, writing it with my uh, partner, with my ex-partner. But we are still like partners in crime of literature. <laughs> so we are writing this book together, which is more most likely going to be like a trilogy about our Africa trip of 15 months. And that's going to keep me busy for the rest of the year, I reckon. Probably taking uh, a rest in August to travel. I had to go to Portugal for a conference about the books and probably flying somewhere in Africa to just to, you know, just to have fun for a month or two sure. before coming back to the studio and keep writing. That's right. One of your, I, I don't know where in Africa, but somewhere. One of your short trips. One of your short one or two month trips, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People who have three weeks holidays hate me when I say that. It's a short trip of one month. I know. I shouldn't say that. But. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Juan, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, walking us all through hitchhiking, showing us that hitchhiking, if done in a smart manner, it's still alive and well, even in the U.S., and, and, and especially in some areas that people might not assume, you know, when you talk about the Middle East and, and stuff like that, and of course, hitchhiking alive and well in South America and especially Europe, and for also changing people's perceptions of areas that are unfortunately are only heard about negatively through the news. I know that's your whole mission, your whole goal. So remind people one more time how they can come get a hold of you. We're going to be linking everything up in the show notes because a lot of what you do is in Spanish, but... You do have your book in English, The Hitchhiking Through the Axis of Evil, correct? Yeah. So here's the thing. The book is uh, tr- has been translated to English by, by a local publisher, but it's available as an ebook. So it's Hitchhiking in the Axis of Evil. So you can Google for that. Uh, but I'm still actively looking for publishers in the U.S. So hello, if someone's out there, you know, I'm looking for that. <laughs> and uh, to like to public to publish it officially. Uh, and yeah, and you can look for me. I know you're going to put the links there, but if you understand Spanish, again, you can look for me in Instagram. And my Instagram account is Acrobata del Camino, which is Acrobat of the Road. That's a translation, Acrobata del Camino. And you can find and follow my adventures on Instagram or on the blog. I'm continuing traveling for a lifetime, so there's no uh, return ticket. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. You can, yeah. And if you Google Acrobat of the Road, you know, put that in your Google Translate. You'll get it up. It'll come up. You can find one. Uh, also, we will link everything up in the show notes. So especially for this episode, if you're listening like, wait, I want to find one. I don't want to speak Spanish. 
Go to the show notes, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. Find this episode. We'll link everything up, do all the hard work for you. So all you have to do is click through, see all the good stuff that Juan is doing. Juan, thank you again. It's been awesome chatting with you. Has been awesome for me too. Thanks a lot for the time. Uh, and yeah, go out to the road and hitchhike people there. <laughs> That's right. I've got a new mission. I've made it. I, I've never truly hitchhiked before. I've gotten rides, but never like actually done it on purpose, I should say. Um, so I've always put it on my like yearly goals. I'm going to hitchhike. So I, this is the year one. This is the one. Okay. When I go to the States, I'm going to look for you. Where are you in Pennsylvania? Or? Yeah, I'm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Come find me. Yeah, we, awesome. We're going to hitch around there. Perfect. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for tuning in today, for your continued support that makes us the number one rated travel podcast. And until next time, everyone, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris soon.